know, that particular provision um, that allows the judges to limit the rights, you know, based on what's you know, reasonable or justifiable in a democratic country, it really opens the door to the judicial bias in a sense. And, and, and more importantly, actually, I think more reflection of judicial ideology. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Today we want to talk about uh, some of the changes that we are witnessing that seem to be happening at light speed in Canadian society and culture. People of my generation would remember a time when stores weren't open on Sundays and when school days open with the reciting of the Lord's Prayer. These are things that were generally accepted in our society until about 40 years ago. So what is happening? How did we get here? Where did we start from? And what can we do about it? Well, today's guest is uh, an historian who has spent a great deal of time uh, watching this and studying this transition uh, in Canada from what was a, a Judeo-Christian-based society into one that seems to be hell-bent on driving into extreme secularism and liberalism. And, uh, and so he's an authority, an expert on this topic, and so we're looking forward to talking with him to find out to, to, how, to, how we can answer some of these questions. Uh, his name is uh, Michael Wagner. Uh, before we get to him, uh, of course, we have a few uh, quotations, aphorisms that we're going to uh, share with you to frame the conversation. The first one is from uh, someone who our guests will know very well, or at least will know his writings, and that's Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He knows a thing or two about the distinction between uh, liberty and tyranny. And uh, he wrote many things. One of the, the things he wrote uh, is justice is conscience, not a personal conscience, but the conscience of the whole of humanity. Um, closer to home, a well-known Albertan politician, uh, Stockwell Day, once famously wrote that our parliamentary system has simply failed to meet the challenge of judicial activism. And that's a topic we're going to be uh, talking with our guest about. And finally, from um, a very famous American Christian jurist uh, who was on their, their Supreme Court for a very long time. This is Justice Antonin Scalia, who died about seven years ago. He once wrote that God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I've brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Who do we have on the show today? Well, Michael Wagner. Michael is um, uh, a well-known Alberta author. He is a researcher and writer, often on uh, platforms such as the Western Standard. Uh, he has a PhD in political science from the University of Alberta. And uh, he has written a number of very, very fascinating books about Alberta and about Canadian history. Uh, one of the books that he's written uh, is particular to the topic that we're going to be dealing with today. Welcome to the show, Michael. I should say welcome back to the show because you were a previous guest. Thanks for having me, Leighton. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Michael, the last time that you were on the program, we talked a lot about uh, the situation in Canada of Canadian federalism and Alberta's role within Confederation, its development, and some of the challenges that we're facing today with 
uh, sort of the question of Alberta sovereignty and perhaps even independence. Today, what we want to talk about is um, this idea that we've become a very secular society. We see these signs everywhere. And it would be very hard if, if uh, you know, let, let's say uh, aliens from outer space were here in uh, 1975 uh, and they came and they landed uh, today in Canada. They, they would have a hard time recognizing the society because of all the changes. Can you, would you mind talking a little bit about maybe the, 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 the beginnings of secularism in Canadian society and, and maybe uh, talk about where we were uh, maybe 40, 50 years ago and, and maybe how we got here? Sure. Well, basically, you know, um, Canada needs to be considered as part of a larger group of countries, you know, the Western countries, because all of the Western countries, in a general sense, had a Christian philosophical foundation. Like every society has a philosophical foundation. There, there's no society that doesn't. And so whether whether it's a Christian society or an Islamic society or a secular society, every society kind of has a, a basic framework of ideas that its laws and its government are based upon. So Canada is part of the Western family of nations that were all essentially based on a Christian foundation. And this whole Western civilization has, you know, throughout the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century, been drifting away from its Christian foundation and toward a more secular or progressive kind of foundation. So a lot of the changes that we talk about that are happening in Canada have also are also taking place right now in other countries like the United States, we see the same type of thing. So there's a general sense in which Canada is part of a, a bigger move of the West away from Christianity towards a different worldview that people are endorsing. But there's all more, also more specifically Canadian things. And, and this is like where the Charter of Rights came in. Even though all the countries have been drifting away and Canada would be still drifting away in the secular direction, even without the Charter of Rights, I believe that it's one of the tools that's been most helpful for the secularists in helping to move Canada away from its Christian foundation. So even though Canada would have been gently, you know, moving away from its Christian foundation without the charter, the charter kind of supercharged that move because it gave secularists tools that they could use legally to change laws in Canada that had a Christian basis for that. And so we can talk about this at different levels, the move away from Christianity, like in a general sense of part of Western civilization, we can talk about it more specifically, and we probably will be today about what particularly was happening in Canada, and how Canada's experience was somewhat different from the others, in terms of the institutional changes that enhanced the move away from its Christian perspective. You've written a very fascinating book on this topic. And in your book, you, you talk about some of the forces that drove Canada to, to becoming more of a secular society. And you also talk about the Charter's role in that and also how um, a very seminal decision in the Supreme Court of Canada, that's a Big M Drug Mart, I believe in 1982, how that was a very important moment in, in Canadian history in terms of that. I wonder if you could start with maybe talking about what some of those forces were that you describe in your in your book. Yeah, well, like I begin by describing, you know, Canada's Christian foundation and how it was commonly seen that, that Canada was a type of Christian country, you know, certainly up until uh, the time of the charter. Like there's major historians that you can consult who wrote about Canada's, uh, you know, being a Christian country. There are even politicians at various times who talked about that. In fact, Johnny MacDonald at one time in the House of Commons in the late 1800s referred to Canada as a Christian country. This was not a, a strange or unusual thing. You know, this was common for, for politicians in the late 1800s and early 1900s to talk about Canada as a Christian country. And in particular, like, like there were specific themes that I talk about in Leaving God Behind to show how Canada had turned away. Like one of the big ones and this is relates to the big m drug mark decision that you talked about was canada had a lord's day act like from the time that um 
uh, Canada was settled, like the early British colonies, because Britain had laws protecting the Lord's Day as a Christian day, um, those laws were transferred to Canada. So each of the Canadian colonies had laws that restricted certain behaviors on the Lord's Day because, you know, for Christian reasons. Now, when the colonies joined together and became Canada, they still had those laws on the books. But what was strange was, see, the federal government was given um, jurisdiction over criminal laws, and those Lord's Day laws were considered criminal. So the provincial laws at the provincial level actually became null and void because they were at the provincial level and the provinces no longer had that control over the the criminal law, the Lord's Day Act. So those laws were struck down. So it was seen that there was a need for a federal level Lord's Day Act. And so that was enacted in 1906. You know, it was quite a popular thing, you know, the House of Commons and the Senate passed the Lord's Day Act in 1906. So that would give restrictions on what kind of things, what kind of businesses and other activities could happen on Lord's Day. And it was said specifically because Canada was a Christian country, so we wanted to protect the Christian Lord's Day. One of the interesting things about the Lord's Day Act was because in different parts of Canada, it had different levels of support. So even though it was a federal law, they gave the provinces the power to administer them. So in a province like Quebec, which had less support for it, they could um, enforce it lightly. And in a province like Ontario, where it was more popular, they could enforce it more strictly. So it was a federal law, but administered at the provincial level. Gradually, though, um, uh, support for the Lord's Day legislation, you know, started to erode in Canada. You know, for example, in World War One, they had to suspend it because, you know, when there's a war on, you can't take the Lord's Day off from a war. So they suspended mm -hmm. it for World War One and for World War Two. And after World War Two, you know, which was a six-year war, people kind of had gotten used to not having Lord's Day Act, so it was kind of losing its traction within the population. Um, in 1960, John Diefenbaker brought in the uh, Canadian Bill of Rights, which had a freedom of religion provision in it. And so a couple of uh, businessmen in, in Hamilton challenged the Lord's Day Act on the basis of the freedom of religion in the Supreme Court. Um, they had, a, like I think, a big bowling business. It was uh, um, Robertson and Rosa Tanny. So that went to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court ruled that the Lord's Day Act did not violate Canada's historic freedom of religion because Canada had always had you know, uh, Lord's Day protection of some sort or other. And so uh, on the basis of the fact that Canada has always had these kinds of laws, they, they did not violate Canada's conception of, of freedom of religion. So, but that all changed, of course, when the Charter of Rights came in. Um, this time it was Big M Drug Mart, a drugstore in Calgary. Now, it, it, the case was actually in 1985. And this is because even though the charter became officially part of Canada's constitution in 1982, there was a three-year waiting period where, where governments were given a period of time to update their laws so that they would be in conformity with the charter so that they didn't immediately have charter cases against their laws. So the charter, for the most part, came into effect in 1985. And that's when Big M Drug Mart um, you know, a drugstore in Calgary was open on the Lord's Day. It was challenged. You know, the police, you know, said that this was a violation of the law. So they challenged the Lord's Day Act in the, uh, against the charter. Now, the charter, the judges ruled that the Lord's Day Act did violate the Charter of Rights because under Canada's, under the Charter of Rights, Canada had kind of had a blank slate of new rights that the judges did not have to look at the precedents, you know, from, from Rose, Robertson and Rosatani. They were, you know, starting with a blank slate about what they believed um, freedom of religion should be. And so they struck down the Lord's Day Act specifically because it was a Christian law and Canada could no longer have any legislation which, with a religious basis. And of course, that would mean a Christian basis. So, so that was a, like a very major Supreme Court decision because it was the first Supreme Court decision on freedom of religion provision. And so it set a very broad parameter for that. And uh, so, so that was kind of knocking down the first pillar of Canada's Christian legislation in a sense. And there would be other uh, specific laws as I, that I talk about in the book that were struck down within the next few years on the same basis that 
any law that had a Christian basis to it violated the Charter of Rights. And so this was uh, very significant in terms of Canada's history because here now, um, secularists had a particular constitutional provision that they could start knocking down laws that they could not knock down previously. Um, and I, I might actually uh, mention too, you know, the Lord's Day Act was just a, a piece of legislation. The Parliament could easily have overturned it if they wanted. Like if, if Canadians were demanding previously to that, that the Lord's Day Act be repealed, the Parliament could easily have repealed it, but it wasn't repealed by the Parliament. It was struck down by the Supreme Court. And of course, that was one of the major effects of the Charter of Rights. And that was one of Trudeau's intentions was um, he, like he wrote a book in 1968 as, as Justice Minister proposing the Charter. And he mentioned that this would mean, you know, transferring power from the legislatures. Canada had a history of parliamentary supremacy where legislators made the laws for the most part and judges interpreted them transferring some of that power to judges because then they would have the power to strike down laws that the judges felt were contrary to Canada's you know charter of rights so so the fact that the, the judges were given this power was a deliberate on the on, on Pierre Trudeau's part and also it was one of the criticisms of it because he wrote that book proposing it in 1968 and of course it wasn't until 1982 that the charter was adopted so over that period of years there was much criticism of the charter and much of it was on the basis that it was overturning parliamentary supremacy and transferring judges sorry transferring power from from elected officials to unelected judges there was a particular lawyer i understand who uh was was one of the people who was questioning the propriety of the charter in this context, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Um, like I, I'm, there, there were different lawyers who mentioned criticisms. I know, like there were political scientists and law professors. I, I can't remember the specific, specific name of the law professor that I quote, but in certain parliamentary hearings, a number of these officials, uh, and there was a lawyer named Gwen Landall actually, who was a, a pro-life lawyer who specifically pointed this out too. Um, I'm not sure if you're mentioning her, but mm -hmm. but there was a number of, of of lawyers and law professors and political scientists who pointed out how this was, you know. This was transitioning Canada's British form of system to a more American style system, because, of course, the American Supreme Court had, had had the power to strike down laws for a long period of time. And during the mid 20th century and into the 1960s in particular, the U.S. Supreme Court kind of had changed its judicial philosophy somewhat and moved. And basically, it had moved to the left. And in the 1960s, the Supreme Court was making very significant rulings based on the U.S. Constitution, you know, um, overturning prayer in public schools, you know, overturning Bible reading in public schools, um, and striking down various restrictions on insanity and things like this. It was taking a very active role in the 1960s in, in American politics. There was a, there's other like criminal law reforms and stuff. And Trudeau actually liked I, I, what was the American court was doing and was, and was hoping that Canada, um, the Canadian courts, would do something similar. And that's exactly what many of these critics pointed out, that Canada would be essentially adopting a U.S. system where the Canadian Supreme Court would be making very significant political decisions, just like the U.S. Supreme Court had been doing. And so this was a major theme of criticism right from 1968 until the charter was adopted by, by you know, like I say, various academics as well as lawyers who have pointed out that's very thing would happen. Mm -hmm. And of course, it has happened. One of the uh, significant differences between our charter and the British common law system of, of assessing uh, rights and also the American system is section one of the charter, which is this catch-all uh, public policy saving provision. And it essentially provides the, the court with the ability to, to, to uphold or overlook uh, a, a specific rights violation if, the, if in the balance uh, the, 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 the public safety or public benefit of of uh, of not upholding the right or 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 withstanding the the violation of the right uh, outweighs the 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 uh, severity of the rights violation. We saw this particularly with COVID. For example, 
with freedom of religion. For example, in, in California, um, when, when, uh, when there were restrictions placed on churches being open, uh, that, that was taken before the, the Supreme Court of the United States. And, uh, and those restrictions that were imposed in California upon attendance in church uh, were, were, were struck down as unconstitutional. Uh, interestingly, in Scotland, where they have no charter, where they basically have the common law protections that we had pre-charter, the same thing happened. Uh, they tried to restrict attendance at church, and the court said, you can't do that. So in a real sense, we're worse off with the charter, particularly because of Section 1, aren't we? It gives, it gives the, the judges this enormous power, really, to, to, to almost disregard or overrule the individual rights violations that, 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 that occur in a situation like that. Uh, do you, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I sure, I sure do. And I think, you know, that particular provision um, that allows the judges to limit the rights, you know, based on what's you know, reasonable or justifiable in a democratic country, it really opens the door to the judicial bias in a sense. And, and, and more importantly, actually, I think more reflection of judicial ideology, because mm-hmm. um, it gives them an open door, you know, to justify what their particular views would be in a particular file. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, the American system doesn't give them as much of a door like that as the Canadian system does. And so, um, you know, for the most part, when we, when we look at the COVID uh, lockdown issues, um, in a general sense, you know, pro- it was is a progressive, you know, people who have a progressive viewpoint tend to be more in favor of those um, COVID lockdown measures. And the judges tend to be progressive in their ideology as well. So they they are, are more easily in their own minds justify those kinds of restrictions on citizen rights you know it's it's the more conservative people generally speaking who thought that those uh, COVID measures overstepped what the government should be doing and were therefore a violation of their rights and it's more progressive to see those um the the restrictions as being very important and so people with a more progressive outlook um, are going to be find it more easy to justify those restrictions and because judges have that particular outlook for the most part themselves they find it easy to justify this lockdowns as well and because this provision in the charter you know gives them that leeway then they can you know it's it it gives them the ability to to you know like say restrict those rights to some degree this uh, concept of judicial activism is something that um most people, I, I think, are unaware of, but it has very uh, important uh, uh, implications for, for society. We talked about COVID, and in fact, uh, courts in Canada unanimously upheld uh, government lockdown provisions in Canada. Uh, that was, uh, they were in chorus and almost took judicial notice. They just accepted that there was something called a pandemic and that it, it justified all manner of really unprecedented restriction of human rights and civil rights in this country. We're finding out now that all of these restrictions really were not only um, unjustified and unjustifiable and unnecessary, but extremely harmful. But it's more than just COVID. For example, a recent decision uh, just uh, just uh, denied a legal challenge, uh, which was trying to get transgender women out of women's sports. And so now we have courts, again, using this progressive ideology to say trans women are women and therefore they can occupy spaces that were formerly reserved for women. So this concept of judicial activism um, is, is concerning because uh, it, it essentially uh, purports to say that judges assume a role as independent policymakers or trustees 
on behalf of society that goes beyond their traditional role as simply interpreters of the Constitution and our laws. In other words, they assume the role of lawmakers versus interpreters of the law that's made democratically by our legislatures. Do I have, do I have that right? And is that is that is that cause for concern? Yeah, yes to both. You do have that right, and it is cause for concern. I mean, the whole concept idea of judicial activism, in my mind, it came up originally in the United States, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, by the 1960s, because, you know, before before World War II, for the most part, the U.S. Supreme Court um, had been much more... Uh, much more conservative in its approach, like much more um, self-limiting in its approach. And it was after World War II when this whole concept of judicial activism became a bigger idea, where judges became, you know, took more upon themselves in terms of what they were doing in terms of their constitutional interpretation of the laws. It began striking down more laws than ever before. So it was within the U.S. context, I think, that this terminology, judicial activism, you know, became more of a concept, especially, as I mentioned, by the the 1960s under Earl Warren, who who was the chief justice then. So again, then, with the charter before the charter Canada didn't have that kind of problem because judges did not have you know what was called the constitutional supremacy they weren't able uh, they didn't have as much leeway to strike down laws they could like there was an account actually in Alberta in 1938 the Alberta social credit government put some restrictions on press freedom in Alberta and the Supreme Court of Canada struck that down even though we didn't have you know, a constitutional bill of rights because it violated you know the, the same the British idea of freedom and liberty so, so the Supreme Court and judges could strike down laws before the Charter, but it was very rare and it was only in those more extreme circumstances. But the Charter, you know, gave uh, the judges a platform and, and, uh, and the powers to use it, you know, to interfere in, in political matters more than ever before in Canadian history. And as I mentioned, like this was, an, this was anticipated by the critics of the Charter and even, you know, Trudeau mentioned this in his, in his original book. So this was something that we should have expected uh, with, with the Charter becoming, uh, you know, adopted in 1982. And it has happened. I mean, not every judge takes to the same degree. There are judges with a more conservative perspective who, who do stand back a bit more and, and um, are less likely to strike down legislation. I think there's been studies done by political scientists, you know, of different political, of different Supreme Court judges and their perspective because they, the, the judges tend to have, you know, a particular perspective and that's consistent throughout their, you know, period in office. So they, some judges are, are much more, um, more, like the, more likely to take the judicial activism approach than others, but the charter kind of super enhanced that for every judge if they wanted to. And so, you know, judicial activism has become a much bigger problem in Canada since the charter and because of the charter. So that's, it's definitely a problem. And, it, you know, like I say, if you were to study Canada's history from the perspective of judicial decisions, there would be a notice, noticeable um, change that occurred in 1985 once the charter had come into effect. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, 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 the net effect seems to be that in just over 100 years, we went from a country that had a, a Lord's Day Act, a National Lord's Day Act, and a vote in Parliament uh, un, un, almost unanimously endorsing that, to a country in which we have a ministry of Islamophobia. Uh, which is a, which is almost a watchdog outfit looking out for attacks upon Islamophobia, presumably from Christians. So, so um, this is a very significant shift, isn't it? Um, and we've seen actually uh, in the United States, there's been a lot of talk recently about um, the Dobbs decision, uh, which overturned, uh, an, uh, or, or I believe, a 1972 decision of the Supreme Court of the United States um, Roe versus Wade. In Roe versus Wade, essentially what the court did is it breathed into the law a right uh, that didn't exist. And when I say right, I mean 
as part of a constitutional right, a right for a woman to have an abortion. Um, but we can see how judicial activism can shift. So in 1972, we have a progressive court, uh, at, at least predominantly, and in, in 50 years later, we have a court that perhaps has more of a conservative bent, and it, it results in a significant shift in the law. So that's one example of how important the politics of judges can be, isn't it? Yeah, that's a very good example, actually. Roe v. Wade's probably the classic example of judicial activism in the United States, because as you mentioned, those judges essentially invented a new right out of the air. I mean, it was mm -hmm. not in the U.S. Constitution. The founders of the, US, of the U.S. Constitution would never have considered that they were establishing a right to abortion, as the Roe v. Wade court did. And, you know, this brings up another important issue, too, with regard to judicial, judicial activism. When judges, when judicial activism becomes the dominant framework for judges, it makes the selection of judges a much more significant political issue. So especially after the Roe v. Wade decision, the selection of Supreme Court judges became a very, very big issue, especially in United States presidential politics, because it's the presidents who, who nominate mm -hmm. Supreme Court justices. So before, before Roe v. Wade, and certainly before the 1960s, you know, um, uh, the, the selection of, pres of Supreme Court justices wasn't necessarily you know, an issue in a presidential election, but it sure became a big issue in presidential elections since then. And, and there were many people who actually defended Donald Trump, like in, 1960, sorry, in 2016, a lot of people supported Donald Trump because he promised to appoint conservative Supreme Court justices, and he did. And that you know, is why um, Roe v. Wade was overturned with the Dobbs decisions, because um, Donald Trump had appointed enough Supreme Court decisions to tip the court in a more conservative direction. I mean, it was it was prime. It was largely Donald Trump's appointees who were very you know involved in that um, Dobbs decision, or at least they were key voters in overturning the Roe v. Wade decision. So, so, so judicial activism makes the appointment of judges way more important as a political issue. You know, especially in the United States. Now, it's a little bit less so in Canada because Canada's Charter of Rights has something that's a bit different, and that's the notwithstanding clause. Now, the notwithstanding clause allows Canadian provincial legislatures or the federal government to um, kind of to restrict or, or to to temporarily restrict certain court decisions. So it, it means that like if, if, a, if a law was passed by, say, Alberta government and the Supreme Court struck it down as a violation of certain charter provisions, the Alberta government could theoretically repass that law and invoke the notwithstanding act, which would protect it from the court's decision for a five-year period, a renewable five-year period. Now, because of this notwithstanding provision, which allows some polit politicians in some circumstances to kind of temporarily at least overturn a court decision, that makes Canadian um, judicial politics uh, like less intense than the American ones, because the Americans don't have a notwithstanding clause. So if the Supreme Court rules something, that's it. That's the bottom line. You can't go any further than that. The only way to change that was to appoint new judges, you know, which takes generations, like with the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. In Canada, politicians do have some options that the Americans don't. And so Canadian politics hasn't taken on the same characteristic of, of having the importance of judicial nominees. So, you know, the, the, when, the, when there's a federal election, you don't hear the uh, leaders of the conservative and liberal parties promising to appoint certain kinds of Supreme Court justices, because the politicians still have an option with the notwithstanding clause. If there's a very extreme Supreme Court decision, you know, that that gets enacted, they can have some leeway in, in trying to deal with that with the notwithstanding clause. So that's one of the differences mm -hmm. there between Canada and the United States and their constitutions. One of the aspects of secularism in the context of judicial uh, a selection that we're seeing played out, though, is this concept of intersectionalism and how this is uh, you know, sort of coming into, into the, the conversation. 
Uh, last year, there was a, a very qualified woman named Katanji Jackson, that, but, uh, but she's a black woman. She was appointed to the American Supreme Court. But what's interesting about that is that even before she was selected, President Biden said that he would be selecting a black woman. And uh, during her confirmation hearings, she was unable to answer a seemingly simple question, which is, what is a woman? Uh, in Canada, uh, recently, uh, a, a woman who claims to have Indigenous background, uh, and that seems to be her main qualification for, for selection to the Supreme Court of Canada, has been nominated by the Trudeau government. So we're seeing this secularism in the form of intersectionalism uh, becoming very important in the context of judicial selection. And my concern, uh, Michael, I want to ask you about this, is it realistic if we're going to select judges based upon political considerations, in fact, their own politics or their own immutable characteristics, is it realistic to expect that once they become a judge, magically, they're going to forget all about this and they're not going to be political in the way that they make decisions? Yeah, well, it's not realistic to think that they're going to forget that. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, they're being appointed. I mean, I'm, I'm certain I'm certain that they have many qualifications. Like I would never challenge that for a minute. But if they're being appointed because of a certain gender or, or a race or something like that, it kind of it, it seems that merit then isn't the number one and the only criteria. Like historically, I think um, we would think at least that merit was the main consideration. I mean, who knows in the background, maybe there are other considerations, you know, for various appointees. Mm -hmm. But people, I think when they when they go before a judge, they want the person, the best person, you know, the person with the most knowledge, the most thinking ability. And so merit in most people's mind, I think would be that the qualification that's most important. Like not that these people don't have merit, but, um, but it's, it's like uh, merit is only one consideration compared to some mm -hmm. others. And so, you know, potentially um, it could, you know, reduce the quality of some of the court decisions, you know, if, if people who are there aren't necessarily the best people to be there. So, um, you know, I can't say any with any particular certainty that certain judges shouldn't be there or anything like that. I would never say that, you know, they're mm -hmm. all very qualified people, but it does raise that question in people's minds, you know, is this the best person for the job or did they get that because they were part of a certain segment of the population? You know, mm -hmm. is there like a quota system, you know, for having judges on the Supreme court? Well, and it's not just judges, is it? I mean, recently, uh, we've seen our, our beleaguered head of the RCMP in Canada, Brenda Lucky, who is, let's face it, she's had a disastrous tenure. Uh, there are questions about her, there were questions about her qualification, her fitness for, for that job to begin with, that she was only selected because, well, primarily because she was a woman. And Justin Trudeau has said that her replacement is going to be an Indigenous woman. Well, my question is, how do we know that an, an Indigenous woman might be the most qualified candidate? But when we have these very, very important positions, which impact so many Canadians, uh, really every Canadian, don't, don't we deserve to have the best, most qualified person there, regardless of their immutable characteristics? Um, and so I guess what I'm asking is, is this concept of diversity, inclusion, equity as an expression of secularism, is it doing more harm than good? That could, could be very well be the case. I mean, like I can't say categorically, like I don't have any evidence or data right now. But, but like again, if 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 merit is not the only consideration, if we're if we're bringing in these other factors that are more important than merit, um, the odds of getting the best candidate, you know, are at least decreased. You'd think, you know, I mean, because it's it's not just based on their knowledge, experience, and and previous decisions. You know, certain people, you know, say um, of 
like say for example a white man might be ruled out because he doesn't fit the right category but maybe he's the best person you know what i mean so mm-hmm. so we might end up with a situation where we're not getting the very best person because we have other you know considerations in mind we're trying to get the court to you know reflect in a visible sense of the population um, which you know in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing but if that's the goal rather than having the best person you know we, we could very well end up limiting or reducing the quality of the judges that we get on the court mm-hmm. or in other positions as you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, so closer to home i want i want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in alberta as you know, we have a very, very important provincial election coming up. And uh, you've written some things where you've expressed concern about the NDP, the Alberta NDP and their agenda. Uh, one of the pieces that you wrote is, um, uh, what is the NDP's hidden agenda this time? And you've also written another piece talking about how uh, Christian schools are threatened by the NDP sexual agenda. Do you want to talk about uh, those, uh, those in conjunction, if you, if you could? Sure. Like that first one, the hidden agenda, like what that refers to is, you know, when the NDP was elected in 2015, shortly thereafter, they brought in uh, the carbon tax, but they had not campaigned on the carbon tax. So that was, you know, what I consider part of a hidden agenda. So so basically what I'm arguing there, and if they, if they had that, there was other um, laws they brought in too that they hadn't talked about during the campaign. Um, so if, if, if in 2015, they, they, you know, they did not mention some of their key platforms, uh, or the key policy platforms during the campaign, Perhaps they're going to do that again. You know, we it's it's a legitimate concern because they did that in 2015. They could very well be doing that now because they're trying to present themselves as a moderate party, you know, as a way of winning the election. Their constitution says explicitly that they're a socialist party. That says, you know, it says that the New Democratic Party is uh, right. its purpose is the to manifesto, it's a, right? Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's it's a democratic socialist party, and its purpose is to establish establish democratic socialism in Alberta. That is the stated purpose of the party in its own constitution. So we know that socialism is the goal of the NDP, which is not a moderate goal, socialism, but mm-hmm. they're trying to present themselves as a moderate party. But it, as we see from 2015, they have other agendas that they're not going to mention during the campaign, uh, you know, agendas that they know will not be popular. And therefore, you know, they want to keep them in the background during the campaign, but they will bring them after they get elected, if they get elected. And so I'm just raising the question in people's minds, you know, you know, in 2015, they had a, a secret agenda. And so, you know, we got to expect them to have the same thing again uh, this year. And uh, I just, you know, I want to raise that concern because I want people thinking about that. I don't want them to mm-hmm. look at the NDP, just what the NDP is saying outwardly. And, oh, well, they, they're telling us that they're not dangerous. They're telling yeah. us they're moderate. Well, you could vote for them on the basis of that, but there's going to be a surprise. You know what yeah. I mean? There's, that, that's kind of the- uh, Fool me one, shame money. on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what is this, uh, this sexual agenda in schools that you're concerned about? Well, like, again, during their first time uh, in office, uh, one of their big issues was the, the gay-straight alliances. Um, uh, like, there had been a gay-straight alliance bill passed under the Progressive Conservative Party, you know, previous to the election, which uh, made it possible so that s- students in any school um, could request that a, a gay-straight alliance would be, uh, you know, established in their school. But uh, there were some private Christian schools that were not comfortable with that because, you know, um, you know, the, uh, the gay-straight alliance idea, uh, you know, um, come... <sighs> Behind it is a particular, um, you know, lifestyle, a particular sexual lifestyle that does not align with Christian values. And so are there some Christian schools that spoke up and said, you know, we're not comfortable with that. And if, if uh, you know, that was a, if a student requested that for our school, we might not allow that because, you know, that's not aligning with our values. So the NDP brought in another law then in a, saying that not only... Um, 
where they have to bring in a GSA um, if a student requested it, but they have to write have to write into their policies explicitly now that they will allow a great gay straight line. So every Christian private school that received funding would have to um, write into their policies that they are willing to have a gay straight alliance. So there were some Christian schools that were unwilling to do that. And so the NDP was going to defund those schools and deaccredit them. But the election of 2019 came along in time to save those schools. I mean, the UCP won the election and, and um, uh, did not follow through with the NDP's threats. Um, so if, if the NDP was to be elected, um, this, uh, those schools are very likely to be defunded. I mean, this issue will probably raise its head again, and the NDP will probably move forward with this agenda because, you know, they were moving forward with it quickly uh, um, in their previous term. And this time they would have time to, um, to defund and, uh, those schools if those schools were unwilling, you know, to state it categorically that, um, that they would allow gay straight alliances. Now, the, another part of this, too, was... Um, in the during that last year, you know, during this court case uh, between the schools and and um, and, uh, and the Alberta government, there was what was called the rep the the rainbow reprimand. That's what the Justice Center on Constitutional Freedoms called call it. Because not only would they have to write the gay straight alliances into their policies, but the government was objecting to certain statements in their policies about marriage between a, being between a man and a woman, and the Bible being the word of God. And so the um, someone in the Department of Education was going through the school policies and highlighting them in different colors if they opposed, um, if the government thought it was not reflecting diversity or not reflecting um, inclusivity. So each of these mm -hmm. categories had a different color. And so these schools would get back their policies highlighted in different colors as to what the government wanted to remove. And so um, the Ju Justice Center called that the rainbow reprimand because of the different colors, you know, right. the, um, to, to, to mark out the different policies. So and these were so the government was requesting, the NDP government was requesting that certain policies stating the Christian beliefs of the schools would have to be removed because they did not reflect the diversity, you know, Mm -hmm. quote unquote diversity that the government wanted. So that was all part of this agenda. And, and so I, again, I think that this will come back, you know, become a, 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 one of the policies of the NDP. They pushed it before, they're going to push it again. And so cr Christian schools in Alberta will be under threat again if the NDP gets elected. So that's what that column was about. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting that uh, many people who uh, seem to support diversity, inclusion, equity, which I, I call die, um, because it seems to kill everything it touches, don't understand it fundamentally. It's an it's an anti-Christian ideology. Indeed, it's a religion. Um, and and uh, talking about this school question, um, taking it a, a sort of a step back, maybe maybe a level deeper. Uh, this whole concept of what is going to be taught to our children in schools drives a wedge between parents and their kids. And there are some academics and and uh, and and people, perhaps I think, within the NDP party, um, who think that um, this is a battleground over um, you know who who do your children belong to? Do they belong to the state or do they belong to the family? This is, seems to be a fundamental tension that's going on. Uh, this was a, a very significant um, campaign issue last year in the Virginia state uh, gubernatorial elections. And um, and it seems to be one that's sort of bubbling to the surface in Alberta as well, isn't it? In, in other words, uh, if if the state, if the province can determine uh, what the kids are going to be learning at school, regardless of whether or not the parents support that, whether it's consistent with the parents' values, it begs the question of, well, whose children are they? Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. You know, this, this issue actually 
um, has manifested itself before in Alberta. Like uh, this is going back a few years, but but when the private school movement began in the 1970s and then into the homeschool movement in the 80s, this was very much a prominent issue then because you know up until the 70s, just people generally sent their kids to public schools. You know in Alberta, that's you know there's also the separate schools, which is in a sense part of the public system. And in the 70s, parents began to realize that our culture was changing, and that culture you know, was those changes were being reflected in the public schools, like, for example, in, in sex education and, and the literature that was brought into schools. So, so during the 70s, more and more people began to take their children out of the public schools and create private schools. And so this was a big issue at that time. Like, who makes those decisions? Because what I'd call the public education establishment did not like that at all. You know, when, when the children are being pulled out of the public schools to be in a private school setting and later a homeschool setting, you know, that was taking them out from the you know, public school establishment out of their uh, power. And so they objected strongly to that. So there was strong opposition to the creation of private schools in Alberta in the 70s and into the 80s, you know, and homeschooling too. So back in those days, it was kind of a public education versus private education kind of dynamic where like what's changed now, it, it's like what's these, the, um, this kind of division or discussion is taking place within the public schools themselves, right? It's, it's public schools like Virginia, it was the parents were coming to the public school board and saying, we don't want our children taught this. And the public school board was saying, well, we don't care what you think, you know, it's up to us. We're the, we're the experts, we're the professionals, we'll decide what the kids you know, are going to learn. So it's, it's, um, it's the same issue of parental rights versus the government, but in, you know, now it's being moved right into the public schools, whereas before it was more of a public school versus private school kind of issue. But it's, it's, you know, so this issue has been around in one form or another for quite a while. And it's a very important issue because, you know, if, if the government has authority over the children, um, you know, even John Stuart Mill talked about the danger of that, actually, you know, mm -hmm. in the 1800s, that right. you don't want the government forming the minds of all the, of the citizens, basically, you know. Right. Uh, one of the things that um, kids are being taught in schools is, are, is, is, are, are the benefits of socialism. Uh, and, of course, uh, that's, that should be of concern to some people because, of, of course, socialism and communism are fundamentally atheistic. Marx famously quipped that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. Uh, but we are having uh, socialism taught in our schools, and you wrote a piece expressing concern about this, about uh, the NDP's socialist education agenda. Why should we be concerned about uh, kids being taught about the benefits of socialism in school? Yeah, that was actually based on um, the, the NDP had released a, a curriculum document um, while they were in power. And in the bibliography for that curriculum document were some um, books that were cited that they had used um, that, uh, like there was one in particular, um, Dare this, uh, I can't remember the title right of hand, but the, it was a particular educational philosopher in the United States from the 1930s. Um, I think it was Dare the Schools Create a New Social Order or something like that. Anyway, mm -hmm. his book was, was advocating the use of the public schools to convert children to, so, to support socialism as a way of changing the society. Um, again, I, I can't remember his name offhand, but he was, a, he was a famous educational theorist from the 1930s. And so I raised that thing, why is the NDP using this as a reference in their curriculum document, a, a book that particularly has as its purpose the idea of advocating socialism through the school system to change society, to overthrow capitalism and, and, and institute socialism. So um, it, like, there's no direct linkage that I could find between that book you know, and the NDP's curriculum. I'm not suggesting that, but it seems strange to me that they were referring to those kinds of materials in their bibliography. Like, why were they consulting those kinds of materials when they were creating their curriculum. I mean, there's so many other, you know, curriculum books mm -hmm. they could use. I mean, they did have cite, of course, other curriculums as well, but they didn't cite any of the conservative curriculum specialists, you know, um, that we have today. They were, they were citing some of these ones that um, older 
you know, left-wing educational philosophers who saw the education system as a tool for changing society, you know, through changing this, having the students believe a new system, the socialist system. Mm-hmm. So, so I was just kind of raising that as an issue. Why are, why are they even like looking at those kind of books when they're creating a new curriculum was mm-hmm. kind of the question I was right. We're trying to raise. Right. So. We've talked about activist uh, judges um, and we've talked about uh, concerns in Alberta in terms of the school system and, and the secularization of that. Uh, we also have activist mayors in Alberta, um, one in Edmonton and one in Calgary. And in a recent piece you wrote, you asked the question, is Alberta still Alberta? Uh, and, and I believe this was in the context of the mayor of Calgary passing a bylaw, uh, which uh, essentially prohibits uh, peaceful protest. Uh, this is in the context of uh, Drag Queen Story Hour event, where a local pastor, Pastor Rummer, was imprisoned. He was just released. But I believe part of his conditions of release are that he's, he, he cannot uh, engage his constitutional right of peaceful protest. So when asking the question, is Alberta still Alberta, is that part of what you were speaking to? Like not that particular um, incident that you mentioned, although like it, it's relevant. Like what I was talking about, um, I was looking towards the 2023 election. And mm-hmm. the question was, you know, can the UCP win or will Albertans actually vote for a socialist NDP party? And someone, uh, an activist mentioned in a news story saying, well, it depends. Is Alberta still Alberta? Like we know historically Alberta would not elect the NDP. And in 2015, the NDP got elected because the conservative vote was dis- divided between the progressive conservative party and the Wild Rose party. So the NDP actually only got... Um, less than 41% of the vote in 2015, but because of our first past the post system, they were able to get a majority government, but still the vast majority of Albertans had not voted for them. So historically, Albertans would not vote for a socialist NDP party. And so uh, they were looking to 2023, if Albertans are going to elect an NDP government, like with, with full intention to do so, that would mean Alberta is not Alberta anymore. If you know, you know, his, the, the way we consider Alberta historically, what it meant historically has changed and it's not Alberta, the Alberta we used to know. And so that, that's kind of what I was getting at. So in terms of the city, like with Calgary, that's where we see the change, like the, the move away from conservative ideas in Alberta is strongest in the cities. That's where we see it. Like the, it would be harder to get, you know, in rural areas, the NDP is not going to win most likely. I mean, those are very solid conservative areas, but in, you know, especially in Edmonton and now maybe in Calgary as well, the population is moving in a more leftward direction. It's what's more likely to elect uh, an NDP government. So Alberta is changing, um, you know, in a more leftward direction, especially in the cities. And so that's kind of what that question referred to. Is Alberta still Alberta? Well, the 2023 election will be, you know, part of an indication that way, because if the NDP does get elected, you know, without a split vote on the right, that means, you know, Alberta has changed fundamentally as a province. It's not the kind of province that it used to be. Uh, What's interesting about that is that uh, if Alberta cities, if our big cities are moving towards the left, uh, you you, you wrote a piece about Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan seems to be turning to the right. So what's different about what's happening in Saskatchewan versus what's happening in Alberta? Yeah, well, that's I, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I've thought that through carefully, but, you know, Saskatchewan is a very interesting um, example because Saskatchewan used to be considered, you know, the bedrock of, of socialism in Canada because it elected the first socialist government in North America with the CCF, you know, the Cooperative Com- Com- Commonwealth Federation in 1944 with Tommy Douglas as, as a premier. That was the first socialist government in North America. And the CCF and its um, 
its successor, the NDP, were, were dominant in social in Saskatchewan politics up until the 1990s, and but but no longer they, they're no, they're no longer dominant, and there, there's been a big change in Saskatchewan society, you know, especially. Um, the, the CCF NDP was very strong in the rural areas, and now the rural areas have moved much more conservative and are much more favorable to free enterprise. Now, there's, there's a number of different reasons for that. Part of that has to do just with technological change in the farming community. Like the, the farming farms used to be very small because the you know the technology for one person to do much work you know wasn't available yet. So you needed small farms where families you know could work the farms themselves. So you'd have so Saskatchewan's um, population at the time was mostly rural and mostly these small farms where people worked together and they saw the socialist ideal as more in common with their community traditions. But as the farming technology developed, um, one farmer could um, farm a much larger uh, territory than he could before. And so um, farms got larger and larger. There were fewer and fewer farmers and farmers became more in tune with the market because you know, a farmer with a large farm and his equipment, he could, he could produce a lot himself. And now he was more it was it was wasn't as necessary for him to have cooperation from other farmers and working together you know in terms of you know getting price deals for for the sale of grain through the say the canadian wheat board now they could sell them on their own in the free market and do better so there was a complete change actually in the rural economy away from a more cooperative um type of economy to more free enterprise because the farmers were became small businessmen essentially the, you know each farmer is a, as a businessman with his enterprise and he could produce a lot and make more money if he did it himself so there was there that's kind of probably the most underlying most important factor in the ch in the change in Saskatchewan's economy now Saskatchewan the cities in Saskatchewan like are, are probably they vote NDP to similar to um, you know Edmonton and, and Calgary to a lesser degree. So the, the cities in Saskatchewan would still be left wing like Alberta cities. So um, Saskatchewan has been moving to the right. Alberta has been moving more to the left. And I think part of that is urbanization in Alberta because you know the cities are becoming bigger um, and, and have a, much, a greater percentage of the population. And so because cities tend to vote more left than the rural areas, that's kind of part of the change. And like I, I'm not sure in terms of the rates of urbanization between Saskatchewan and Alberta. I don't want to speculate on that, but um, so I, I can't compare them exactly. But, but there is this thing that you're talking about. Saskatchewan's been moving to the right, where Alberta seems to be moving to the left. And I, I, I couldn't you know, give you a, a proper explanation right at this moment, but, but those are tendencies that are happening mm. for sure. Our uh, our current premier uh, Daniel Smith has been campaigning mostly on uh, the idea that uh, the future is bright for Alberta economically, and she's been very focused on that, focusing on things like healthcare, fiscal responsibility. They recently announced uh, a surplus budget. I do note, however, that uh, without the uh, the federal health money, there probably would have been a deficit budget. Uh, that's just as an aside, uh, but. A couple of things she's not talking about uh, that are very noticeable in terms of her silence or the silence of her government. Uh, she's not commented on what's going on in Calgary in terms of the imprisonment of a Christian pastor who tried to stop a drag queen story event. She's not commented publicly, as far as I know, about the city of Edmonton's proposal to create a world economic uh, test uh, center making Edmonton a 15-minute city, uh, which has uh, very serious implications in terms of individual liberty. Um, you wrote a piece uh, about um, the role of religion in Alberta exceptionalism. It seems to me that this particular government, Danielle Smith's government, is staying away from those issues and focusing on secular fiscal ones as an expression of conservatism. Um, 
What is the role of religion in Alberta exceptionalism, in your view? Well, this has a lot to do with Alberta's history. And I mean, not too many pe people remember, not even people in Alberta, but, you know, from 1935 until 1968, there was two premiers in Alberta. They were both radio evangelists at the same time as they were premiers. Like the first one was William Bible Bill Aberhart, who was elected in 1935 as Alberta's first social credit premier. You know, he was famous as a radio evangelist before he became involved in politics. And he was, you know, he was elected he kept, even as premier, he kept his radio program, his uh, Back to the Bible program. So when he died in 1943, he, he was um, succeeded by Ernest Manning, who had been a cabinet minister who had actually kind of mentored under Eberhard. So Ernest Manning became premier then from 1943 until 1968. And he also took over Eberhardt's radio ministry and not only not only took it over and kept preaching on that regularly, but he actually expanded it further beyond Alberta and Saskatchewan into Ontario. So we had a period in, in Alberta history, you know, from, from the 1940s to the late 1960s, where people in Ontario on a weekly basis could hear the premier of Alberta preaching the gospel over the radio. He was a premier and a radio evangelist at the same time, but both of them were. So, and and um, Ernest Manning never lost an election. He was always reelected, you know, usually with big, 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 big majorities. So Alberta was that kind of of a society, you know, up to the 1960s, where a radio evangelist could be premier. And so, you know, it wouldn't necessarily mean that every Albertan was a Christian or that even the vast majority were, but they were comfortable with that. Like people were comfortable having a, you know, a, technically a religious leader also as a political leader. It wasn't a big deal. It didn't cause trouble. So Alberta was like a very favorable towards uh, Christianity at that time. That's when Alberta was known as the Bible Belt. Like having social credit government with preacher uh, pol politicians um, was probably the single biggest factor that got Alberta the idea of the, of the Bible Belt. And so, so Alberta was, was very much seen as kind of an evangelical center in Canada. And that, that the book that I used mostly for that, um, to do that article on Alberta's religious exceptionalism, like Alberta was considered to be so different that in the 1950s, the University of Toronto did a 10 volume series just on Alberta to try explain Alberta to the rest of Canada. And one of the books in that series you know, I used for that talked about how Alberta was like the center of the, the Bible college movement for Canada, like Alberta had, you know, the Prairie Bible Institute at one time was at least the second largest Bible college in North America. And it, the only rival to it was was Moody Bible Institute, like there wasn't sure which one was the biggest, and which was the second, there were also many other Bible colleges in Alberta. So, you know, up to the 1950s, especially, there was lots of, of you know, evangelical activity in Alberta, Alberta was seen that way as different from the rest of Canada. And of course, that reflected itself in the politics. Now, Alberta has changed a lot recently. And so, um, you know, this is this actually this ties in with this tie. This ties in with what we were talking yeah. about at the beginning. You know, this kind of religious change that's taken place yeah. in Canada and the Western world. You know, generally speaking, that um, people you know have turned away from um, Christianity in a general sense. There's fewer people who go to church. You know, fewer people who identify themselves as Christians, and so that kind of change reflects itself in the politics because mm -hmm. the politicians look at that and they you know they know that if they take a stand on something that might appeal to one part of the population, it's not going to appeal to another part. And so I think you know referring to Danielle Smith, she's going to want to keep her mouth shut on a lot of these things, at least leading up to the election, because anything she says, you know, will become controversial and the NDP will try and use right. it against her in one way or another. Right. So, you know, I, I would expect her to be, you know, quiet on any kind of controversial issue, at least until after the election. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, there's been a, a very significant religious change in, in, you know, in Canada generally, but Alberta, it's, it's even more distinct because of Alberta had a more distinctively Christian culture itself than the other parts of Canada, you know, throughout the, you know, up until like the 1960s. And so, you know, we're seeing the same thing happening in Alberta that we're seeing in Canada. Right. And of course, this reflect in the politics. That's a nice way to round off the conversation.
Michael, um, what I'd like to do is uh, maybe uh, leave off with our reading list. As you know, you've been here before. Uh, I've got a couple of books here I'm going to mention. Uh, one of which is, of course, yours, Leaving God Behind. This is a book that you wrote uh, about uh, 10, 11 years ago. And the, descript- and the description is, the purpose of leaving God behind is twofold. First, to demonstrate using old laws and public policies that Canada was, for most of its history, a Christian country, as you've talked about. And second, to show why it is no longer Christian in any political sense. It once had explicitly Christian federal laws and provincial government policies. These laws and policies have been progressively eliminated since the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was adopted in 1982. The Charter also incorporated a non-Christian worldview into the foundation of Canadian society and thereby undermined Canada's original uh, Christian basis. Uh, the second book I wanted to mention is one that is probably known to you. Uh, it's uh, It picks up in a lot of ways uh, some of the threads in your book. This is a book by Donald Savoy uh, that was written only uh, a couple of years ago. It's called Democracy in Canada, the Disintegration of Our Institutions. And here he says that Canada's representative democracy is confronting important challenges. At the top of the list is the growing inability of the national government to perform its most important roles, namely mapping out collective actions that resonate in all regions, as well as enforcing these measures. Others include Parliament's failure to carry out important responsibilities, an activist judiciary, which we've talked about, incessant calls for greater transparency, and the media's uh, rapidly changing role in a federal government bureaucracy that has lost both its way and its standing. That couldn't be more true today with uh, calls for the Prime Minister's resignation in the face of um, allegations, well, more than allegations, really strong evidence of uh, Chinese interference in our election processes. So those are two books that I would recommend for today. Michael, do you have any that you'd like to add to our reading list? I do have a book that I read recently that I'd like to recommend. It's by it's called Conservatism, a Rediscovery by Yoram Hazoni. He's become prominent in recent years. He's an Israeli-American political philosopher. And this is his, uh, he, he explains, goes back to the roots of conservative ideology or conservative thinking and explains in the Western world, um, you know, what the basis of conservative thinking was and why it's important. And, you know, he actually, because it's the West, he's talking about Christianity a lot, uh, Christianity a lot. And even though he's an Orthodox Jewish man himself, he understands the importance of Christianity to the basis of Western society. And he sees that the only a re- restoration of that kind of Christian influence will bring back, you know, the strength of Western civilization. So even though he's a, a Jewish person himself, he understands how important Christianity was to the West and he's advocating for it to be, you know, again, become the basis of the West as a way of restoring conservatism in, in the Western world, and especially the English speaking world in you know, the United States and Britain, Canada. Well, wonderful. Thank you for that, uh, Michael. We'll okay. add that to our reading list. And thank you for being our special guest today on Gray Matter. It's been just great having you back on to talk about these different topics. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. 